Welcome to this, the last in a series of three talks on the gods of this age, money, sex and power. Of the three, I think power is probably the most difficult to define and measure because, after all, you can count wealth, you can count how much money you have, and you can measure sexual activity. But power is more subtle. It's a more insidious thing for us to try to define. Now, when I'm asked to define power, my mind goes straight away to Spider-Man. Uncle Ben's advice to Peter Parker that with great power comes great responsibility. But we live in times when superheroes are flawed and even they don't live up to their own ideals. The real world and our relationship to power is more like that described by Lord Astor when he said that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power today is seen as a valuable commodity, perhaps the most valuable commodity of all. It is used to coerce, to subdue, force, compel. It's used to line our own pockets and make our own rules, or at least avoid sticking to the rules others have to abide by. Now, the dictionary defines power as the capacity to do something or act in a particular way. That means that power can also mean the ability to direct and influence the actions or behaviour of others or the course of events. What does power look like? Who has it? And how is it used? Well, these are good questions to ask, and I hope we'll be a bit clearer about them by the end of this talk this afternoon. And by reading the first three chapters of Exodus through power-sensitive lenses, I want to suggest that we see both the reality of the fallen world's view of power, but also the redemptive story of power that the gospel holds out to us. You see, the gospel teaches us that, one, we have more power than we know, Two, we have greater power than we can imagine. And three, that we have an all-powerful God who is merciful and just. That's a message that I think that we often lose or find obscured and distorted by the world around us. That we have more power than we know, that we have greater power than we can imagine, and we believe in an all-powerful God who is just and merciful. These are truths that were there from the very start of everything. You see, the world was created with these truths as foundation stones. It was an all-powerful God using his power for the flourishing of his creation, giving his power away to his image bearers. It is what sustains a broken, fallen world. Um, What sustains a good creation that will one day be redeemed and all things made new. So in Genesis chapter 1, every human being, because we were made in God's image, is given the power to be stewards over his creation. He has given his power to us. He's empowered us to hold and enact that responsibility and role. We have power so that God's creation can flourish. The world sees that power is a source and a commodity to hoard. But God gives his power away without diminishing himself, but to realize the fruitfulness and flourishing of his creation. Yet that picture of power for flourishing is far from our reality, isn't it? It seems terribly naive when we think of the powerful in the world today and what they use their power for. What we see and read about are business leaders who use their power to avoid paying taxes and accumulate wealth, often at the cost and the welfare of their workers. Political leaders who use their power to break the rules and avoid sacrifices they're asking others to make. Or social media influencers who use their power to feed a need for their own affirmation and adoration, often at the expense of the mental health of their followers. We see power being used to immunize from accountability, to vaccinate against just consequences. Power is used to enable the powerful to do what they want, often at great cost to others. 
Whereas for the weak and powerless, the world is unjust and harsh. For them, needs go unsatisfied. Justice is never realised. The world for the powerless is full of oppression, frustration and exploitation. And this is the world that the Hebrews were experiencing in Egypt by the time that the book of Exodus begins. As the book opens, we read that the group who were originally been Joseph's extended family and entourage had grown so big that in the Egyptians' eyes, they had become a worryingly large minority, a, a big group that threatened their own welfare. So the Egyptians, worried at the power of this large people group within their own borders, took action to keep them subdued by enslaving them. Now, when this failed to appease the Egyptians' fears, Pharaoh went even further, introducing state-sponsored infanticide, ordering that the murder of every baby boy born to a Hebrew woman. And it is into this world, where the Egyptians seemed all-powerful and the Hebrews powerless, that a particular baby boy was born. The original boy who lived, who survived by being hidden and adopted, of course, you're familiar with the story of Moses, aren't you? The baby, too big to hide at home, and so was hidden in the floating basket along the banks of the Nile, was discovered by a royal bather, who then adopted him and named him Moses. This Hebrew baby boy, who should have been killed at birth, was raised as a member of the royal household. The boy who lived became a prince. And that could have been it, the end of the story. But it was only the beginning of God's plan for Moses. So by verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, we see that Moses has a privileged position. He definitely isn't a slave like his fellow Hebrews, is he? Yet neither has he forgotten who he really is and where he came from. Because twice in verse 11, it says that Moses looked on his people. Or as some Bible translations say, he looked on his brothers. And what he sees, he hates. He hates the violence and suppression. He hates the injustice and the cruelty of how his brothers are being treated. And one day, something inside him just snaps, and he strikes a guard who's abusing a slave and kills him. Now, what we see here is a scene of physical power being used in tandem with positional power and social power. Moses was strong enough to kill the guard, and he was hoping to literally get away with murder because of his status as an adopted member of the royal household, and because there were no witnesses. He thought he would get away with it. Well, not quite. Because Pharaoh may have been able to command the execution of anyone, including thousands of babies, but Moses, well, his position was a little less clear, wasn't it? So when confronted the following day by one of the slaves who suggested he knew about the murder, Moses fled. So in just four verses, the boy who lived has gone from prince to fugitive. Now what I want you to notice here is that you can see characters in this story who clearly have more power than they know. And that should be a reminder that similarly, we have more power than we often realise. From the world's perspective, you see, who had the more power in those first two chapters of Exodus? It's clear, isn't it? It's the Egyptians and ultimately Pharaoh. They had the positional power and authority to make the laws, to set the social, economic and political structures to suit themselves. They had the weapons, the money to subdue and then even enslave the Hebrews. But look more closely and you see that those who seem powerless actually have a great deal of power. Let's take the midwives. The midwives were commanded to kill every male baby born to a Hebrew woman, but they found a way to undermine the royal decree, and they even got away with it. 
Moses' mother and sister. They were slaves, but they found a way to disobey Pharaoh and keep their, their baby alive. And in chapter 2, Moses has the physical power and the position, uh, positional power enough to be able to murder a man. But it was the slave who had the knowledge and information that was power enough to make a prince flee and become an exile and a fugitive. What we see, therefore, is that power comes in many different forms. It can be deployed in many different ways. There's a helpful pamphlet written by somebody called Gordon Priest called Understanding Power. And in it, uh, Priest describes the many different ways power can be held and used. You can have physical power or power that comes from the position that you hold or the resources you own or the relationships that you have. But you can also have power in the strength of your personality and the knowledge you possess, experience power or power in celebrity. Let me just give you a few examples of how that works out in, in practice and how power is more subtle than we often perceive. Take, for example, my GP surgery. Surely it's the doctors there who have the positional power. They have the resources and the knowledge to treat my illness. They are partners in the GP practice, and so they own the business. They have the status, the salary, and without them, the practice would not exist. So surely they are the most powerful person in the GP surgery. Well, not quite, because for me and my relationship to healthcare, they're not necessarily the most powerful people. Because if I need an appointment, the most powerful person I deal with is the GP practice's receptionist. She's the one who's the gatekeeper for me accessing help. She decides if I speak to a doctor or how quickly a request gets processed. You see, by any metrics, she does not hold much power. But in the reality of my experience of the GP practice, she holds huge amounts of power. I wonder if you've ever been in a workplace where the boss has the positional power, but it is really somebody else who pulls all the strings and get things done. Maybe because it's because of their personality or because of their experience or because of the relational capital they have around, they've built up for themselves in the company over many years. You know that if you need to get something done in the office, who do you go to? Often it's not the boss, is it, but it's somebody else. Or let's take a final example. What about celebrities? The celebrity mum who goes on Twitter and has a YouTube channel to give lots of advice on motherhood and parenting. She's got no paediatric qualification, no more knowledge or experience than any other new parent. But the power of her celebrity means that she will influence how millions view their own parenting skills. So I wonder if you're listening today as somebody who, somebody who feels disempowered. If you're feeling that way, read this passage again and take heart that it is not those who the world sees as powerful who have the greatest impact on Moses' life. It was the midwife who refused to follow Pharaoh's order and allowed him to live. It was the choices and actions of his mother and sister who were slaves, but under God's providence, it led to Moses being, uh, being raised in the royal household. It was the Hebrew slave who caused him to flee. So are you like the midwife or the slave in this passage, perhaps thinking that you are powerless, but actually with great power to play a part in God's big story of redemption? You may not be the boss or the manager, but you are made in God's image and you have the power to act and decide, the power to influence and impact. You have more power than you know. But you also have greater power than you imagine. 
We've already seen, haven't we, that some of those who would have been viewed as the weak and the powerless actually had great power to achieve great or terrible things. We see that continue in Moses' story throughout chapter 2 and into chapter 3. In four verses, Moses has gone from being a prince to a fugitive and fleeing to Midian. Here, as an exile and a fugitive, we assume that he is homeless, he's destitute, and he's got no status. Yet he still uses what power he has, physical strength and his status as a man, to protect seven sisters, the daughters of Ruel, from being harassed at the well by local shepherds. So Moses' sense of justice clearly burns fiercely within him. And so as much as we see great acts of discrimination and violence in these opening chapters of Exodus, we also see how people can be drawn to justice. We are sinful people in a fallen world. Every molecule of creation bears the scars of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And yet the beauty and goodness of God's creation is not lost or only distorted. We see dimly through a veil the Father's character Um, as well as his creation, his longing for us to be just people. Moses, like us, bears the image of his maker. He feels compelled to respond to the groans of his fellow Hebrew, to to challenge the harassment of vulnerable women. And in doing so, he echoes God's heart for his people. At the end of chapter 2, we see that God hears the groans of his people, and he is not indifferent to their suffering. He decides to act How? Well, in part, through Moses. So as we read on in chapter 3, we see that Moses meets God in the fire that did not burn the bush. There he begins to hear God's plan of how he will save his people, a plan with Moses at its heart. And Moses asks the two most obvious and great questions. Who are you and who am I? Who are you, God, for anyone to believe that circumstances can be changed and the powers of this world can be overcome? And who am I to be given such a mission, so clearly way too big for me alone to take on? Well, don't we have the same questions and feelings in our own heart when we feel powerlessness? We feel powerless in the face of the world's powers. And each time I have a difficult decision to make, I often ask God, can I really trust you? Each time I take a risk, I often ask God, Will you really provide? Every time I feel God prompting me to serve outside my comfort zone, I ask, who am I, God? I'm sure that there must be somebody else better equipped to do what you're asking. Don't think that that question was reserved for the great and the good, those who seem to have a bigger calling than you. It is the question we all ask ourselves, all who are called to take up the cross to follow Jesus wherever the Father has placed us. So next time you look around the workplace, the church, or even your home and think, somebody should do something about that. Well, maybe that somebody is you because you have all the access to all the power that you need. You see, one of the great lies that many in the church have come to believe is that we are powerless. This would have been a heresy to the early church because they believed in a saviour who died, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. A Lord who will come again to judge the living and the dead, to restore all things. The king of kings whose gospel not only changed their lives, but would change the world. There is no greater power than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when the early church looked on enviously at leaders of their day, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, 
I don't want you to, I don't want to hear about your bragging about yourself or anyone else. Everything already is yours as a gift. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, present, the future, all of it is yours and you are privileged to be born in union with Christ who is in union with God. All power is yours because you are in Christ. He is of the Father and all things are under him. Who am I? asked Moses. One sent by me, said God. Who are you? asked Moses. I am who I am, said God. So when I ask, who am I, God? Am I of any use to you? Well, I cling to those words that C.S. Lewis gave Aslan in The Prince Caspian. I tell myself that you come of the, from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honour enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content, because we have more power than we know. We have greater power than we can imagine, because we have an omnipotent God who is merciful and just. We are in Christ And as Steve Nichols reminded us on Sunday, we are saved to do good works, to be like Jesus in how we use the power that we've been given. Where to begin? Well, let me suggest the antidote to seeing seeing power as the world does it. The antidote is in serving others in Sabbath and in stewardship. Serving others, giving your power away to see others flourish. Sabbath, resting in God to remember that all things come from him and that you are not the centre of the universe. Stewardship, to not cling on to what you have because it is not yours to own, but yours to give away and pass on. Serving, Sabbath and stewardship, the antidotes to power being your idol and the disciplines that remind us that we have more power than we know that we have greater power than we can imagine because we have an omnipotent God who is merciful and just. Therefore, go forth this week in the name and the power of Jesus to use your power for his glory. Amen.